Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Helen Skulls. Helen, what have you got for us? Well, I've got a new study that reveals that undergraduates and fish have a lot in common, at least when it comes to counting. Well, the old wives' tale that fish have a seven-second memory has been well and truly blown out of the water. Sorry about that. Um, With findings emerging that fish, in fact, have all sorts of elaborate behaviour. They can recognise, copy and deceive each other, and it turns out that they can count. Christian Agrio from the University of Padova in Italy led a team of researchers who put the counting skills of guppies and human students to the test by asking them to pick the larger of two groups of things. The undergraduates were shown a cluster of between 1 and 24 dots on a screen. One group of dots were flashed up for 150 milliseconds, followed by a second group of the same length of time but a different number. The students were then asked, without counting out loud, to choose which of the two groups had more dots. Well, the fish were tested by being offered a choice of who to hang out with. It's already been shown that guppies are quite sociable creatures, and if they have the choice, they prefer to join a larger shoal. The experimental fish were put in a glass tank resembling a miniature soccer pitch, with two shoals visible at each goal end, basically at opposite ends of the pitch. And um, the research team watched each fish for 15 minutes to see which shoal they spent more time close to. Well, it turned out that both fish and college students performed almost identically in their tasks. They were both better at correctly picking the larger group of dots or or fish when the ratio between the numbers was high. So, for example, they found it easier to distinguish between 24 and 4 than 24 and 20. And this only mattered up to the number 4. Below that, the ratio between the two numbers made no difference on their ability to pick out the larger group. So discriminating 3 from 4 was as easy as discriminating 1 from 4. Now, the fact that humans can do this shouldn't really come as a great surprise. Other primates have shown similar abilities. But the finding that guppies do it too is certainly intriguing, especially if you consider that primate brains tend to be around a thousand times bigger than their fishy counterparts. Being able to distinguish between different sized shoals could clearly have an advantage for fish, but the study raises various questions about how these counting skills originated and whether it's independently evolved several times. Do they offer any insights as to how they think it might happen? Well, the authors do suggest in their paper that's published in the journal PLOS One that these it really could be... That that there was a very ancient evolutionary origin going way back and that we share the ability to do maths, no matter how bad you think you might be, um, with these ancient ancestors that we share as primates with fish. Because it's called subitizing, isn't it? And I think that it's very well developed in animals that tend to like to hang out in groups. Dogs can do it. The various experiments of if you shortchange a dog, you put more food items into its bowl and then uh, actually... When you reveal the bowl to the dog, there's fewer things there. The dog looks surprised. (laughs) And they sort of use this as evidence that dogs have primitive counting ability. So it does sort of fit with animals that need to hang out in numbers and need to size up oppositions and things, that they should have that kind of innate ability. Absolutely. And you can see how the the selection pressure would mean that counting is a good thing. Um, But but we are hinting here at the fact that maybe it didn't evolve many different times, but perhaps way back it uh, it arose. And when we've kind of, you use it for different things, whether it's counting your food or, you know, figuring out which shoulder to hang out in. Thank you, Helen. Well, this week, one of the world's fastest computers just got ten times more powerful. It's called Hector, 
Uh, the Edinburgh University's building-sized supercomputer now has over 90 terabytes of memory, and it can do 800 million million calculations every second. And it's intended that it will help UK and European researchers to solve some serious scientific problems, including things like forecasting the impact of climate change in the future, predicting the spread of epidemics, and maybe even developing new drugs. Our reporter James Harrison has been to Edinburgh to meet Hector for himself. The noise you can hear in the background is coming from the cooling system for a computer so powerful that each one of these 30 or so cabinets in front of me consumes the same amount of power as 80 one-bar electric fires. This high-end computing terascale resource, or Hector for short, represents about 12,000 desktop systems and the calculations they're capable of performing will keep UK research at the forefront in such diverse areas as engineering, medicine, climate change and environmental protection. Professor Arthur True is director of the Edinburgh Parallel Computing Centre. Well, the supercomputer is capable of doing some 800 million million calculations per second. An easier way to think of it may be to say that it's 100,000 calculations per second for every man, woman and child on the planet. Hector also has an enormous amount of memory. It stores the data on disk, just like in your laptop, except it's got a petabyte of disk space. That's a thousand million, 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 million bytes worth of uh, disk. If you had this much on your iPod and you stored music on it, started listening today, you'd finish in the year 3,153. Until more recently, scientists spent much of their time testing theories and ideas by experimentation. But now, with the availability of such facilities as Hector, adding the power of supercomputing has moved science to another level altogether. The climate is a sort of obvious example of this. You, you don't want to experiment on the world, and the theory is, is just too complicated. You can't sit down with a pencil and paper. So what we do with a, a computer is we take those equations that we know and we solve them using the computer to do what the scientist with the pencil cannot, and that is to dissect the world, if you like, so that we solve the, the climate or the weather for a little bit of Edinburgh, a little bit of London, and you stitch them all together to produce a picture of the, the entire globe and then run that forward for the next 100 years and try to get deeper understanding. It's a complementary approach to doing science. There are some 50 different research groups from around the UK that are using the facility. They span the range from biology and drug design through engineering, chemistry, and all the way to the environment. The running of Hector is managed by the Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council on behalf of Research Councils UK. Being able to predict the effects of global climate change or the way bones are formed were once considered impossible tasks. But now supercomputing is helping scientists in the UK and around the world work towards solutions. Dr Carol Morrison is a senior lecturer in chemistry at the University of Edinburgh. So an example of where the work we're doing fits in with, say, medical science is in looking at the disease pathways of things like Parkinson's and diabetes, for instance. Both of these diseases, the mechanisms of the disease at the atomistic level, depend on knowing what hydrogen atoms are doing, the protons. So these are responsible for dictating the pH of your cells, for instance, So because you can transfer um, hydrogen ions in and out of chemical cells. 
um, and they're also involved with energy transfer and so on. So if you can understand how hydrogen ions can get in and out of cells, then it will allow you to be able to say something sensible about the reaction mechanisms of these diseases. And then that opens up the possibility of being able to design new drugs and so on that might help in the, in the cure of these diseases. But just as with our own personal computers, this technology isn't standing still. We're just about to move on to phase three of Hector, which is going to be roughly ten times the performance of Hector when it started. This opens up a whole series of of new problems that uh, we can start to deal with. And for Carol Morrison, while Hector's current processing power has already produced important answers in the study of molecular interaction, the next phase of Hector promises to build on those results allowing future scientists to produce models that will get even closer to solving the world's biggest disease-related issues. Phase 3 Hector will allow us to be able to expand on our model. We want to adapt it, we want to modify it to make it even more realistic. You write up your work, it appears in a journal, you publish it, and who knows, maybe somebody somewhere will read it and it will be that piece of the puzzle, that clue that they need to be able to take our understanding of diseases like Parkinson's, like diabetes, to the next level. Dr Carol Morrison at the University of Edinburgh ending that report on the next stage of the development of the Hector supercomputer launched this week by Science Minister David Willits. There's also a video of the facility in action on our website at thenakedscientist.com or on the EPSRC's YouTube channel. Thank you, Helen. And now from one of the biggest computers in the world to one of the most compact. Raspberry Pi is the size of a credit card. It will sell for about 20 quid and it will turn your TV into a home computer and the first units are set to arrive in Britain this week. With us is the co-inventor, David Braben, from Frontier Developments in Cambridge. Hello, David. Hello. So tell us, what was your vision for this when you first set about creating this incredible miniature computer? Well, there's a whole group of us at the Raspberry Pi Foundation. It's not just me. But what we're trying to do is to bring um, computers to a lot of people who currently have access to computers maybe at school but don't have access to programming them in the same way. An awful lot of computers these days, it's very hard to actually get at them as a, a, a device for programming. They're very much more devices for sort of consuming software, if you like. And one of the problems is um, a lot of uh, kids at school are put off um, using computers from because ICT is very much how to use how office skills and all that sort of thing. So presume that's what programming is all about, which it isn't. Programming is exciting; it's fun. You can do science. You can do. You can create things. You know, it, it's 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 really good. But at the moment, computers it's very very easy to muck them up. And by that, I mean, you know, to stop them working because you brought in a virus, you've got that sort of thing. The point about Raspberry Pi is essentially we think one of the first stateless computers for a very long time. Uh, In fact, since the days of things like the BBC Micro, nearly 30 years ago. And the the, the point with that, apart from the MAC address, when when you first switch it on, they're all just the same. There's no, you know, if you remove the SD card, there's no state in it. How does this actually work? How have you managed to get this so small? One of the great things with um, the electronics industry over the last few decades is electronics have been shrunk and shrunk and shrunk, less and less power um, for particularly the mobile phone business. So we've really piggybacked off that. The chip that's at the centre of the Raspberry Pi is a chip made by a company called Broadcom here in Cambridge, which has an arm in it, also from Cambridge, um, that is small, low-powered, and also not very expensive. When someone buys one of these things, and £20 sounds like an incredible price point for what you'll be able to do, they'll plug this into their television, 
How do they then interface with it? Keyboard, mouse and so on, how does that work? Yes, you can plug in. It's got um, uh, USB sockets in it, so you can plug in a keyboard, you can plug in a mouse, and there you go. You've actually got a full-on computer. You can do email and things like that, You could whatever you would do on a normal PC. But you can power cycle it very, very quickly. So we've taken a slightly different philosophy where, okay, yes, bad software might come in, you might do something wrong, you might mess it up temporarily, but you press reset and less than 10 seconds later, you're back up again running with a fresh version of the machine. You brought up the BBC microcomputer, and that's, I think, where you made a huge name for yourself with a game which I know people... I know there are people in this room, well, including me, who will have played Elite, which you pioneered. We're still totally amazed that you managed to do with 32K what you did in that game. I mean, it took people a long time to catch up. What language will this run? Because the BBC computer was so amazing at its time because the basic, the language it ran, was so accessible. It was so easy to learn and it got you into it. What will you do with this? Um, well, actually, two of us wrote Elite in the original when, back in um, '84. But what we do with this is we want the first versions, the ones that are going out this week, are what we call developer versions. And we're providing lots of different ways of, of using it. What we plan is later there will be a version that will be a lot more kid-friendly. There are several approaches, and what we want to do in the meantime is work out which is best. And one of them, interestingly, is actually BASIC, the original BBC BASIC. Because, to be honest, learning is what's important, and actually it's a really good system to learn with. So you'll be able to get it to run BBC Basic. This should get legions of kids programming. Is this who you're aiming this at then? We're going to try and get school kids countrywide, just Britain or worldwide, to plug in on this because it's so cheap and it's something they can play with without really messing it up. Well, initial aim was just Britain, but I think worldwide is very hopeful. We've been approached by charities and all sorts of other people. The aim isn't just programming. It's doing creative things with a computer and really to break down the barrier of using the computer as a tool, which is something we saw a lot of excitement for in the 1980s, but that's sort of gone away. They're seen as really dull things. And what's amazing is if you talk about a kid, you say to a kid, oh, would you like to, to make an app or whatever? You know, then they go, oh, oh, that's what you mean. Oh, that sounds a lot more interesting. You, you know, and I think that's the distinction. The first units arrive tomorrow in Britain, we hope. What will you do with them? How will you scale the project up to then optimise it and then start marketing it? Right, well, we're hoping, assuming they all work fine and all that sort of thing, to be actually sending them out this week. Um, We have a plan for increasing the scale of what we're delivering over the next sort of few weeks and months, which I think is very, very exciting. We have a good feel that the demand's high. We don't actually know how high it is, so it's actually very exciting on that side as well. And I know you said it's a foundation, but is it actually a business as well? Is there an aim to try to make money so that you can reinvest that in the development of this thing or make a profit? What's the model? Right, we are a charity, but that doesn't mean we can't make a little bit of money on each unit. It's, it's a very small amount, and what we, we will be ploughing that back in to make the thing better, to produce what we can, and also to support it, because the other part of this is to support an online resource so that children, teachers, parents can upload things and download things to make it become a sort of self-supporting community, which I think could be really exciting. I'm certainly excited. David Braben, thank you very much for coming in to tell us all about Raspberry Pi, which arrives in the country tomorrow. Helen. And with a bite-sized portion of further science news, here's Mira Synthillingham with our Naked Science News Flash. A fast, non-invasive test for virus infections has been developed by scientists at the University of Leeds. Current testing methods involve identifying the genetic material of a virus in samples in the lab. But now, working with adenoviruses, Paul Milner has developed a biosensor formed of antibodies and electrodes that reveal not only the presence of a virus, but also the number of virus particles directly from a patient's sample. 
the antibody binds the virus, that changes the surface of the electrode, and it changes various properties of the electrical current that passes across that electrode. The key point about it is there's no processing. It's literally sensing to your sample, that's your measurement. This is about speed and ease of use. So you could easily do these tests uh, in a doctor's surgery or for some conditions, even at home, if it was something you had to monitor frequently. Fruit flies use alcohol to self-medicate against parasitic infections. Larvae of the common fruit fly Drosophila melanogaster feed on microorganisms found on rotting fruit, exposing them regularly to a high intake of alcohol. The larvae are also vulnerable to infection with parasitic wasps, which eat the flies from the inside out and cause death. But now, infecting fruit flies in the lab and exposing them to food containing alcohol... Todd Schlenke from Emory University found that flies infected with these wasps purposely consumed high doses of alcohol, which poisoned and killed the parasites lurking inside. Infected flies chose alcohol food at about an 80% rate, whereas uninfected flies chose the alcohol food only at about a 30% rate. So flies that are infected, they realize they're infected, and they seek out alcohol to try to cure their infections. You know, these animals out in nature have really, really complex behaviors that can help them fight off infectious disease. We probably unknowingly have similar kinds of behaviors. Alcohol might actually act as a protective toxin against infectious disease and something that should probably be followed up in other organisms. Microchips have been used to deliver drugs in patients with osteoporosis. Ensuring patients take their drugs on schedule and at regular intervals can be a challenge when treating many medical conditions. Michael Seymour and colleagues from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology have overcome this with the design of a chip implanted under the skin and either activated wirelessly or programmed to deliver doses of drugs into the bloodstream at precise times. Their clinical trial delivered a parathyroid hormone used to improve bone density in seven female volunteers with osteoporosis. But the technology has the potential for a range of drug treatments. This is the first time that implanted electronics have been used to deliver drugs. There are many applications for potent drugs that require subcutaneous injections. MS, diabetes, reproductive health, human growth hormone treatments. So there are many diseases that are treated by very potent drugs, like we're able to deliver with this device. And finally, some of the smallest chameleons in the world have been discovered on the island of Madagascar by researchers from the Zoologische Stadtsammlung in Munich. Four new species were identified by Dr Frank Glaw as they moved from their daytime dwellings in leaf litter and climbed onto branches or leaves to rest at dusk. The smallest of the group, Brukesia micra, is one of the smallest reptiles known and reaches a maximum of just 29 millimetres in length. It seems that the miniaturization of animals on small islands gives them a new ecological niche. The competition, for example, of invertebrates, of spiders or minor invertebrates are um, not existing in these islands and so these animals can evolve into this uh, particular niche that might be otherwise on the mainland occupied by larger animals. Images of these miniature chameleons can be found on our website and the finding was published this week in the journal Current Biology. Mira Sintheningham, all those stories and the references are available on our website at thenakedscientist.com forward slash news.
The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.